Section 37 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Esmond, Castleton on Hudson, New York. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 37. Eugenics. Eugenics. An Accusation. Every human being should love his kind, and the love of his kind should awaken in his breast an interest in the future of his race. The improvement of his race is the object of eugenics, and a want of sympathy with the present eugenic movement betrays either selfishness or an unenlightened conservatism. The Answer. With the right sort of eugenics, we are in perfect sympathy. There is a sound species of eugenics which ought to be welcomed by every lover of his kind. But in the actual eugenic movement of the day, there are elements of which no Christian, especially if he be a Catholic, can approve. The Church has made no pronouncement on the eugenic propaganda as such, but many features of the movement are at variance with sound Christian principles. Eugenics, from the Greek eu, well, and genos, race, birth, origin, may be said to have originated with Sir Francis Galton, an Englishman who was born in 1822 and died in 1911. He had begun early in life to study the effects of heredity on the capacities of men and women of various classes and professions and was ultimately led to an investigation of the condition for improving the human species through heredity. The subject was taken up by others and studied and discussed with growing interest, till finally, of late years, something resembling a science of eugenics has begun to take shape and find practical application. Today eugenists are so numerous and so energetic in their propaganda that the subject is at last brought home to men's business and bosoms. Eugenics, as defined by the Eugenics Education Society, is the study of agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally. The object of the eugenist is to lay a foundation for the betterment of the human species but he must not be confounded with the ordinary philanthropist. In the first place, he calls science to his aid and uses very special means for the furtherance of his object. Among other things, his work is organized and depends for its sources on the combined activities of many. In the second place, his efforts are directed immediately and almost exclusively to the bettering of the physical well-being of man. The intellect is an object of solicitude, but the condition of the intellect is supposed to depend on the condition of the body. This all but exclusive devotion to the human body reminds us rather too forcibly of the interest of the stock raiser in the improvement of the breed of horses. Morality is not a matter of indifference to him, but he often subordinates it to the interests of the body, and, as likely as not, he will be found to have any but conventional notions regarding the very essence of morality. He will be found in many cases 
to be a disciple of naturalism, or of extreme evolutionism, anything but a Christian. Such is the general aim of the eugenist. His more immediate object is to bring it about that only healthy children shall be born into the world, and, as it is desirable that the right kind of children be born, it is deemed no less desirable that only the right kind of men and women should wed. Hence the efforts of the eugenist to prevent certain classes of persons from becoming fathers or mothers. Here, indeed, the chief stress of the movement is laid. Certain diseases, or certain undesirable propensities, are either transmitted by the parent to the child, or are acquired from early domestic environment. Persons possessing these defects must not be allowed to marry. Chief among these diseases are alcoholism, lead poison, venereal diseases, epilepsy, insanity, feeble-mindedness, deaf-mutism, and consumption. The eugenist is not content to use the art of persuasion or indirect methods of any kind to prevent persons infected by these diseases from marrying. Compulsion must be brought to bear upon them, and hence the state must interfere. Among other measures to be provided by state law, the requirement of a medical certificate of health must be complied with by those desiring to marry. Already in several states of the Union, laws to this end have either been passed or proposed for enactment. But the eugenist does not stop here. He will make it physically impossible for the defective to become fathers or mothers, and here again state authority is invoked in the most drastic measures proposed. Criminals, lunatics, the feeble-minded, and others must be sterilized by means of surgical operations. Apart from calling in state authority, though partly in connection with it, one type of eugenist would cut into every usage or law, even when it is essentially bound up with religion, that interferes with the physical well-being of the race. Divorce must be resorted to as a means of preventing defective offspring. Marriage must be universal among the healthy and celibacy confined to the unhealthy. The size of families must be reduced by methods which every Christian knows are forbidden by the divine law. Even the education of the young is to be brought under the influence of the eugenic propaganda. As the abuse of the sexual instinct makes for race degeneracy, children are taught to avoid it. But how? By instructing them in the most indelicate matters concerning the human body. But in ways, eugenists assure us, that will make them respect their bodies and consult for their future happiness by avoiding incontinence. Such is the program of eugenists. Not that every eugenist advocates all the extreme measures we have been describing, but that these are prominent and persistent features of the movement taken in the gross. Now, we are loath to oppose any movement that aims at improving the race, and in point of fact we are not opposed either to eugenics in the abstract or to any right form of eugenics in the concrete. We are eugenicists ourselves, and as Catholics we stand for certain eugenic principles and methods which we believe will one day be recognized more universally as the only sound and practicable ones. 
What we are opposed to is the spirit and the methods of the present movement as embodied in the activities of many practical eugenists. The greater number of eugenists lay themselves open to the following grave charges. 1. They are over-hasty in the practical application of their principles. Seeing that the science of eugenics is still in so crude a state, what right have they to influence our legislatures to adopt the most drastic measures in behalf of a problematical improvement of the race? The average politician who secures a seat in one of our legislative bodies is not a man who understands the significance of such enactments, affecting, as they do, personal, social, and religious interests of the most vital importance. What right have they to apply a half-digested science of eugenics to the immature minds of children, especially when they are aware of the widespread opposition to the procedure on the score of morality and religion? 2. They unnecessarily infringe the rights and sacrifice the good of the individual. In all legislation, it is true, the good of the greater number claims the first consideration, but there are certain individual rights that must not be sacrificed by human law to any prospective good of the greater number. Take, for instance, the right of the individual man or woman to enter the wedded state. It is desirable, as everyone will admit, that parents should not be breeders of children having a predisposition to consumption, and if it were a question here simply of a superior form of stock breeding, consumptives should be forbidden to marry. Even as it is, there may be cases in which persuasion might effectually be used without indiscretion. But the use of compulsion is quite another matter. The breeding of children is not the only end of marriage. The divine institution of matrimony contemplates also the happiness of parents and, at the same time, provides for the satisfaction of the sexual instinct under the regulation of law. An unruly satisfaction of the instinct will oftentimes be the result of a prohibition to marry. In what right-minded eugenists can view with complacence the spread of incontinence among so large a number of the unmarried? Let us add to this consideration the fact that the children of consumptives and of other defectives often inherit the best of moral tendencies from their parents and are bred under parental care to habits of virtue which certainly ought to be reckoned as assets for the community in which they live. That the parents in question should be systematically instructed and directed, possibly too, as a matter of state law, in the early physical rearing of their children, and that the children should be secured special hygiene and medical aid, is a proposition to which few would object. In our day, in consequence of the advances made in practical medicine, many a young man or woman infected by organic diseases has been saved by medical care for many years of usefulness. Another point, which bears on medical operations performed on defectives, is worthy of serious consideration. Vasectomy or any other such operation is indeed effective for the attainment of its immediate end. Criminals and imbeciles operated upon can never become fathers or mothers, but the prevention of parenthood will not bring with it a cure of incontinence. The sexual instinct will be left, 
and will crave satisfaction. Procreation will be impossible, but who does not see that the very absence of what is often regarded as an inconvenient consequence of sexual indulgence will be an inducement to incontinence? The instruction of large groups of children in the secrets of nature is another instance of harm done under the inspiration of the eugenist movement. The professed object of such instruction is to instill into young minds a love of purity, to warn them of the dangers that threaten them, and of the consequences of carnal indulgence. It is presumed that when a child is taught the nature and purpose of certain bodily functions, he will begin to take a serious view of matters which he now regards lightly, and will develop a sense of self-responsibility. Here again, it is not the aims, but the methods that we condemn. We are uncompromisingly opposed, as the great majority of mankind is opposed, to the teaching of any of these things to children in groups, and even to the individual child in private, except with the utmost discretion. It argues very little knowledge of child nature to suppose that a class of children hearing these things explained will not suffer moral taint. The appeal made to their intellects really affects their imaginations much more than it does their intellects, and that, too, at a time when their imaginations are liveliest and their intellects and their moral purpose weakest. The presence of numbers will only intensify the evil effect which such instruction must have upon the imagination of children. We are not forgetting, however, that in the manner of conveying such knowledge, all grossness may be avoided. One of the methods proposed, or in use, is that of leading up to a knowledge of human life by instruction on the analogies of plant life. But one thing is certain. Either the ultimate knowledge sought to be conveyed will be too vague to be of any practical use, or, if it is clearly set before the children's minds, especially in groups, it will have nearly all the effect of knowledge suddenly and bluntly conveyed. As soon as the fact has been reached, imagination is stored with images on which it is more likely to ring the changes. Instruction in these matters may in many cases be necessary and salutary, but no small amount of discretion is required to impart it without doing harm. Parents are the natural instructors of their children on these points, but even parents must be guided by what they conceive to be the necessities of their children and choose time and occasion with the greatest circumspection. Young children are to be guarded against incontinence chiefly by the inculcating of external modesty, the avoidance of idleness and vanity, and the shunning of dangerous companionship. We shall have a word to say later on the most important part of their education, that which has to do with the supernatural. Older boys and girls may need to be warned against the physical and moral consequences of the acts of which they do not know the significance, but again with extreme circumspection. The most that can be done with children assembled in common is to instruct them in the least graphic way possible on what is forbidden and enjoined by the commandments, but in a way that will impress them no less than enlighten them. 
Among other things, they can be impressed by the thought of the consequences, physical and moral, of sinful indulgence. Number three, eugenists advocate extreme measures when moderate ones would suffice. They favor, for instance, the mutilation of the feeble-minded and others when such expedients as segregation have proved by experiment eminently successful. The idea of segregation is to separate defectives from the rest of the community and place them under a regime that will contribute to their happiness and retain them in a state of unwedded contentedness. That the idea is not chimerical is proved by the success of actual establishments for the care of the feeble-minded, some of which have been in existence for many years. Typical institutions of the kind are the school at Waverley in Massachusetts, the establishments at Sandalbridge in England, and Ersberg in Bavaria, and the Giel Colony in Belgium. A similar institution has been opened, or is about to be opened, in the Surrey House in England. In these institutions, the inmates are provided with congenial occupations and attractive amusements. In the Giel Colony, considerable freedom has been allowed the patients, and without any frustration of the great aims of the Institute. How far compulsory entrance into such institutions would be justifiable or feasible may be a question, but the satisfaction actually felt by the inmates of certain of these establishments gets the assurance that very many feeble-minded persons might be persuaded by an appeal to self-interest to place themselves under so pleasant and salutary a guardianship. 4. Eugenists often ignore the best of all means of improving the race, those namely supplied by religion and the moral law. We make this something of a charge against them, because although many of them make personal profession of religion, they seem to make little or nothing of its practical efficacy or of its laws. Their absorption in the interests of physical well-being seems to make them oblivious of the spiritual forces in human life, which, if they were fully and universally developed, would enable the world to solve many of the problems regarding physical well-being by which it is agitated today. Eugenics would have smaller reason for existing if the spiritual and the supernatural dominated in the souls of men, for many of our racial distempers are the fruit, discreetly or indiscreetly, of sin. No true philosophy of health can afford to undervalue the spiritual element in man's nature. This being the case, any system of eugenics will be notably defective if it fails to bring these truly eugenic influences into the foreground of its propaganda. In point of fact, they are very commonly ignored. We've already noticed instances in which the spiritual good of individuals and of the race is subordinated to the physical. We Catholics are not indifferent to movements aiming at the extirpation of racial diseases, and this the history of Catholic charity abundantly proves. But we protest in the name of Christianity against any invasion of materialism, and much of the eugenics of the day is materialistic, into the domain of man's spiritual interests. At the same time, we are conscious of possessing in our own systems of practical religion, the most effective means of preventing those racial distempers which are due to the abuse 
of the animal instincts. The best fruit of true spiritual development is a strong will, especially a will fortified against mere instinct. A Catholic child's will is trained under Catholic influences in a way and in a degree that are unknown and unguessed in other religious systems. Early religious instruction, strict religious obligations involving much self-denial, the discipline of the confessional, which applies the highest moral sanction to the renunciation of evil habits, the transforming power in respect to the will of union with one Lord in the sacrament of his love. These and other sources of influence possessed by the Catholic Church, though ministering directly to her children's souls, are in the long run the best preservatives of their physical well-being. If other religions cannot bring to bear upon the problems of eugenics such powerful forces as these, let them at least employ such forces as they have at their command. Let them use all the influence they possess in favor of religious education and against all forms of public and private immorality. Let the followers of those religions set their faces against all new expedients for the improvement of the race, which are essentially unchristian and which are characterized more by haste and only apparent thoroughness than by wise foresight or a knowledge of human nature. End of section 37 Recording by Paul Esmond Castleton on Hudson, New York